All right, wherever and however you find yourself watching or listening to me right now, I'm glad you're here. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, book of 1 John chapter 1. Um, at the beginning of this week, I did not expect I would be preaching to an empty room again, but that goes to show how little I know. Uh, I'm especially thankful today for uh, the providence of God. When we speak of God's providence, we're describing His mysterious guiding of circumstances and events, often in ways we don't anticipate or even see. God's providence reminds us that His hand is always at work, even when we cannot see it. That's a truth I always try to remember, but I found myself clinging to it even more closely these past few months. Uh, it was my expectation that our, our church would partake of the Lord's Supper together this morning for the first time since February. I planned to use this passage in 1 John to help us reflect deeply on the meaning of that wonderful institution that Jesus gave to His church. Um, after we made the decision to suspend in-person gatherings, however, I, I began to see what a timely word there is for us here this morning. So I want to encourage you, wherever you are, let's truly give our attention to the Lord this morning. Uh, when we open this book, when we read from it and seek to understand it in the power of the Spirit, there is something truly extraordinary, something truly supernatural about that. And so as we read, let's ask God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We're going to begin reading in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to read the whole chapter together. So let's read. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Let's pause there and let's pray together. Lord, we ask that You would speak through Your Word. Spirit of God, we pray that You would move in the words that You have spoken, that You would take them and that we would hear them not as dead words that were spoken a long time ago, but that we would hear them afresh this morning. God, that you would impress them upon each one of our hearts, wherever we may be gathered together today. Lord, that you would work through your word, and we trust that you will do that. We trust that your word, wherever it goes, it will not come back empty. And so, Lord, I pray that today. I pray, um, Lord, that you would make your work, word do the work this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to I start with kind of a, a broad observation that's crucial to us understanding this 
passage. It has to do with the distinction that John makes in the first five verses of this chapter, the distinction between we and you. Notice this with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 again, and I'm going to emphasize those two words, we and you. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Now once you get past verse 5, John drops that distinction and he associates with his readers. It's kind of like you could think of it as John begins this letter as he's standing on the opposite side of the room and he's speaking to his readers. But then when he passes verse 5, he goes and moves over to the other side of the room and he sits down with them and he begins to speak of we, including them. Look down, for example, at the first verse of chapter 2. John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So surely when he says we, we have an advocate with the Father, he includes his readers in that promise, right? That wouldn't make any sense if he said to them, we have an advocate with the Father, but that doesn't include you. Here, here in the first five verses of the letter, however, he does draw a line. He draws a distinction between we and you. And if we're going to get very far, we have to make sense of who he means by we and who he means by you. So simply put, this distinction is between those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry and those who were not. So John wrote this book over 1,900 years ago, and even though that's the case, we have something in common with his original audience, and that is that none of us have seen Jesus with our own eyes or heard him with our ears or touched him with our hands. Instead, we rely on the God-inspired testimony of those who did. John's readers were in the same boat we are which is to say none of them had seen Jesus with their eyes. None of them had heard Him with their ears or touched Him with their hands. And that is why, John says, he has written this letter so that he can tell us, so that he can proclaim to us what he has seen and heard and touched. One one thing that's really enlightening is when you compare how John begins this letter with how he begins his account of the gospel. So, There are four accounts of the gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the same John who wrote that account of the gospel is the John who wrote this letter that we call 1 John. I want you to listen to how John begins his account of the gospel. John chapter 1 verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now compare that with 1 John 1.1. So John 1.1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 1 John 1.1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and so forth. That which was from the beginning. So in other words, 
the one who was with God and who was God, the one through whom all things were made. That's what John says in John 1, verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And what John's saying here in 1 John 1 is that that person who was from the beginning, who was with God and who was God and through whom all things were made, we have heard Him. We've heard Him with our ears. We have seen Him with our eyes. We have looked upon Him and have touched Him with our hands. We are eyewitnesses, ear witnesses, hand witnesses, if we can use that terminology, to the fact that the one who was from the beginning, who was with God and who was God, through whom all things were made, that he became flesh. And we have heard him, and we've seen him, and we've touched him. And that which we have heard and seen and touched, John says, we now proclaim this to you. We're, we're telling you this, what we have heard and seen and touched. And so here's a question that I want us to ponder. The question is, why? Why did they proclaim this to us? Why do we have the New Testament? It's a question that is, seems so obvious that we might not even think to ask it. But why do we have the New Testament? Why do we have the testimony of these eyewitnesses? On a personal level, if you're in Christ... Why is it that someone told the gospel to you? Why is it that, that perhaps when you were younger, a Sunday school teacher shared the gospel with you? Why is it that sometime in the past, a, a pastor or, or an evangelist or, or just a family member or anyone, a friend, why is it that someone proclaimed the gospel to you? Why are you in the providence of God listening to my voice right now? The way we tend to answer that question is, is in a very individualistic way. We, we think, okay, I, I've heard the gospel so that I could trust in Jesus and have eternal life, right? That's why I heard the gospel. That's why we have the New Testament, so that, so that I could hear the gospel and believe it, trust in Jesus, and, and have eternal life. That's certainly true. John himself says that he wrote his account of the gospel, this is, these are John's words, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Maybe one of the most famous verses in the gospel according to John, one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible, John 3.16, where there's this promise that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And John says, that's why I wrote this account of the gospel, is so that John 3.16 could be a reality, so that you could hear and believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing that you may have life in His name. So that's true. That's undeniably true. But it's not the only way that the Bible answers that question. Why do we have the New Testament? Why did God see fit to appoint people to bear witness to what they had heard and seen and touched? The Bible answers that in more than one way. Notice what John says here in verse 3. He says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that, here's John telling us why he and the other apostles proclaimed what they have seen and heard, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father 
and with his son, Jesus Christ. It's striking that what John could have said there is, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Instead, what he says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So this is the truth that I want us to meditate on together this morning. That the purpose of the gospel is not just my individual salvation or your individual salvation. The purpose of the gospel is also to produce a community of people who have fellowship with one another because they have fellowship with God through Christ. The gospel is God's instrument not only to bring individuals into salvation, but to bring them into fellowship with others who have salvation as well. So here's a more concise way we could try to summarize that. That when God makes us His children... He also brings us into His family. When God makes us His children, He also brings us into His family. Those two things go hand in hand. The word that John uses to describe this here in this passage is the word fellowship, and that word is is crucial. John uses the word fellowship four times. Twice he refers to fellowship among believers, and twice he refers to fellowship with God. So two kinds of fellowship, and they're intertwined. If you claim to have fellowship with God, but you don't love those who have been born of God, then your claim to have fellowship with God is shoddy. John's going to go on later in this letter to say in chapter 4, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You cannot credibly claim to be a child of God if you don't love the family of God. God's grace does not only lead to individual salvation, it also produces fellowship with other believers. And even when John speaks of fellowship with God, he says, Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, I proclaim this to you so that you may have fellowship with God, nor does He say, I proclaim this to you so that you may have fellowship with me and my fellowship is with God. He says, what we've seen and heard we proclaim to you, to y'all, plural, so that y'all may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, Just what is that fellowship? How do we recognize it when we see it? How do we pursue it by God's grace? We we sometimes joke that uh, Southern Baptists think fellowship means eating. Uh, The truth is there are many narrow, thin definitions of fellowship floating around. So I want us to try to glean a more robust definition of fellowship from these Verses and I want to. There, there are several things we could say, but I, I want to just try to focus in, direct our attention to two truths. The first truth is that biblical fellowship is partnership in mission. Biblical fellowship is 
partnership in mission. The word that John uses for fellowship here is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as partnership. And with that in mind, I want you to look again at what John says in verse 3 and and think about this in terms of a partnership. He says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship or partnership with us. So we proclaimed the gospel to you so that you can join us in proclaiming the gospel to others. That's one way of you could, you could summarize what John's saying there. We proclaim the gospel to you so that you can join us in proclaiming the gospel to others. Jesus has commanded us to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them to observe all that He commanded us. Our commission from King Jesus is not only to help people become God's children... Sometimes we think that, that our, our goal is just to, we just got to get people to pray a prayer, walk an aisle, that sort of thing. And that's not what Jesus said. He said, your goal, the commission that I've given to you is that you would make disciples, which means that you don't just make someone or help someone become a child of God, but you bring them into God's family, into the church. That's what he means when he says, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I want to share one practical opportunity that our church has to to partner in this mission. Uh, Back in March, when the initial shutdown began, it was right around the time when we would have started promoting the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American missions. And because I didn't want to overwhelm uh, everyone at the time, I decided there might be some wisdom in, in waiting until later in the summer. I naively hoped that things would have settled down by now. Um, But in the providence of God, I had a friend who reached out to me just in the past few weeks. His name is Quintel Hill. Uh, He and I went to college together, and he recently planted a church in Monroe, North Carolina. They're calling it Multiply Community Church, and they, they began meeting just last September in a school. Now, I know that um, none of us knew what would unfold in 2020, but in hindsight, if I could you know, hop in a time machine and go back and talk to Quintel in September, I might have said, hey, six months before a global pandemic is not the ideal time to plant a church. Of course, that's if you're thinking in a worldly way. Um, because the truth is, young churches often meet in borrowed spaces, when everything got shut down in March, Multiply got booted out of their, the school where they were uh, meeting at the time. And young churches don't tend to have an excess of rainy day funds or income. In fact, they sometimes operate at a deficit until they have enough people who have been discipled to give regularly. So several weeks ago, God opened a door to help with the first problem, the problem of, of space. They found a building that they can start meeting in as early as August, literally two weeks from today. There's still the second problem, though, and that is the issue of of funding. The building needs some work. It needs paint, some electrical work. Uh, They need chairs for people to sit in. So Quintel reached out to me just to see if there was any possibility that our church could help, and and I'm so glad that he did. Because, you see, we were going to receive an offering for North American missions, and here is a North American church plant in need of immediate assistance 
Uh, and so God has opened a door for us to, to be able to step in and, and help them. So here's what our church is going to do. Instead of sending an offering to the North American Mission Board, uh, as we would typically do for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, uh, just for this year, we're going to send that offering directly to Multiply Community Church. And this is going to help them to get their building ready so that they can begin meeting there next month, Lord willing. So I just want to encourage you, if you're able, uh, to join me in expressing our fellowship, our, our partnership with this young church plant. We have set up a fund through our online giving platform. If you're, if you're watching this sermon on Facebook or YouTube, I'll make sure that we have a link to that fund in the video description. If you're listening on the uh, podcast, we'll put a link in the episode notes. You can also mail a check to Billy Sue if you're more comfortable with that. Just make sure you indicate what it's for. 100% of what you give through this offering is going to go straight to Multiply Community Church to help them in this hour of need. And I, I want to be really clear. I'm not suggesting that the Bible requires you to give to this offering. I'm not suggesting that you, if you want to be obedient to 1 John chapter 1 that you have to give to this offering. I'm simply saying the New Testament consistently portrays biblical fellowship as partnership in mission where we hold the rope for one another where, where we, we see someone who's doing ministry and we say we want to come alongside them, we want to partner with them and hold the rope for them so that we can become partakers in their ministry, we can become co-laborers in their ministry and they can be helped along their way to be more effective where they are. So whether it's, whether it's here in our community or whether it's around our country, around the world, one way that we express our fellowship in the gospel, our, our mutual relationship with God is by partnering with other believers in the mission that Jesus has given to us. So the first truth was biblical fellowship is partnership in mission. The next truth I want us to see is that biblical fellowship is communion in truth. Biblical fellowship is communion in truth. You cannot have that first truth without this second one. Because there are plenty of people in the world who are united around a common mission. Uh, some of them might be fairly neutral, like a business whose mission is to provide their customers with a great product or experience. That's their mission. That's what unifies them. But that's not what we're talking about here when we talk about biblical fellowship. It's also possible to be united around a sinful mission. You can think of a, a gang of bank robbers working a heist. They have to be united in what they're doing, but that doesn't make what they're doing right or biblical. You can think of a cult unified around a charismatic leader. They may all be on the same page, but that doesn't mean that what they're doing is good or right. So this is a really important point. Unity is not inherently good. Unity in and of itself is, is neutral. On its own, it is neutral. What makes unity good is when we're unified around the truth of the gospel and the life that the gospel calls us to live. It's also true that we, we often confuse unity with sameness or uniformity. So we imagine that fellowship means we all think alike. We all have the same kind of background. We all share the same political opinions and cultural tastes. 
we naturally gravitate toward people who look like us, who talk like us, who think like us. Just because that happens naturally does not mean that it's biblical. In fact, oftentimes the things that we naturally do may be things that the Spirit is not in. And sadly, the American church has often catered to this desire for people to be unified around something other than the gospel. Rather than communion in truth, we often pursue fellowship around shared interests and preferences. But biblical fellowship is communion in truth. It's not that I agree with you about everything and you agree with me about everything. It's that we agree on the most important and central things. We agree on the things that are eternal. We're God's family united to one another because we're united to Christ. We're all branches abiding in the same vine. Notice what John says in verse 5. He says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. When John says God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, what does he mean by light and darkness? Well, John is fond of using words that have double meaning. So when he says that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, he means that God is pure truth and He's pure holiness. God is always right and He is always righteous. So with that in mind, notice what John says in verse 6. He's just said, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Now he says, if we say we have fellowship with Him, the one who is light and in whom is no darkness at all, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, here's, here's something I want you to notice, okay? Based on what John says in verses 5 and 6, you would expect him to say in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God, right? Because he's just said in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, that is with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with with God. That's what we would expect John to say. Instead, he says, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. In other words, you cannot be a functioning member of God's family while simultaneously walking in darkness. And walking in darkness means that you're not walking in holiness, in righteousness, or in the truth. Now, being in God's family does not mean that we have to have it all together. It certainly does not mean that we pretend to have it all together. In fact, it's the opposite of that. Being in God's family means that we are honest with God and with ourselves and with one another about our own sin. That's what it means to walk in the light. Walking in the light does not mean living perfectly. If you you read that and say, oh no, well, I'm in trouble because John says if we... If we walk in darkness, then, uh, then we can't have fellowship with God or with one another. Well, I'm in trouble. That's, that's if we think that walking in darkness means walking in absolute sin and walking in the light means walking in perfection. That's not what he means. It means walking in the light means living in honesty 
about God and about ourselves. It means that we cling to the gospel and that we confess our sinfulness to God. That's why John adds in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's what it means to walk in the light. That may be the the simplest way to define what John means when he talks about walking in the light. It means that we confess our sins. It doesn't mean that we're sinless. In fact, John says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Walking in the light means we confess our sins. And when we do that, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we cannot have genuine fellowship apart from this. Biblical fellowship is communion in truth. I said earlier that we're not used to thinking this way. Somewhere along the way, the American church imbibed the American spirit of radical individualism. It's all about me, my rights, my happiness, my satisfaction, my goals, my soul, my salvation. I was thinking this week even of a phrase many Christians use. as a phrase I grew up hearing, and I'm sure I've used it many times. That The phrase is when someone describes Jesus as my personal Savior. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that phrase. It's just one that the Bible never uses. The Bible nowhere speaks that way of Jesus. Jesus does not teach us to pray, My Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The Apostle Paul uses the phrase, My Lord. He describes Jesus as My Lord once in the New Testament. He describes Jesus as Our Lord 53 times. So my Lord once, our Lord 53 times. Even here in 1 John, John focuses on the communal aspect of our salvation. He says in chapter 2 verse 1, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteousness. Not just me, but we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now don't get me wrong. The Bible teaches personal responsibility. Each of us will have to give an account to the Lord for what we have done and failed to do. Paul says in Galatians 6, Let each one test his own work, for each will have to bear his own load. So every single one of us is going to have to stand before God as an individual and give an account for what we've done. We won't be able to look around and say, Oh, but I was part of a great church that did all this good work. Or I was a part of a, of a family that, that did all this great stuff. Or my mom and my daddy did all that or whatever. No, no, no. None of that. You're going to have to stand before the Lord and you as an individual are going to have to give an account for did I trust in Jesus or did I not? Did I walk in the light or did I walk in darkness? But with all that said, right now, here, today, in this era of salvation history, we need to recover a sense of the importance of our communal life in Christ. Because while I will have to stand one day before God and I will have to give give an account for me, not for you, not for anyone else, but for me, that does not mean that today I have to live my life 
as a Christian on my own all by myself. In fact, if I do that, I'm not living up to what God has commanded us to do. God never redeems and adopts someone with the intention of relating to them individually. He does so in order that they might become a part of his family. That's what it means to be in a family. I'm a part of a family, and I don't, I don't relate to my sons individually and say, okay, well, well I'm going to have a relationship with this son and with that son, but they're never going to know each other. They're never going to have a relationship with each other. No, because they are my sons, they are brothers. And so when God brings us into his family, when he adopts a person as, a, as his own child, then you, you just gained a whole lot of brothers and sisters. You didn't just get a father, but you got, you got a whole family. When God makes us his children, he brings us into his family. The question I want to leave with you this morning is, is this. Are you walking in darkness or are you walking in the light? If you're not being honest with God about your sin, you're walking in darkness. If you're putting your trust in something or someone other than Jesus, you're walking in darkness. If you are believing something other than the truth as God reveals it in His Word, you're walking in darkness. And if you are not loving God's family, the people of God, the church, you're walking in darkness. The good news is, if you're walking in darkness today, you can begin to walk in the light. I just want to encourage you, wherever you are, if God is is doing something in your heart to convict you of sin, to draw you into a relationship with Him, or to draw you closer to Himself, I would love to speak with you, pray with you. If you'll you'll reach out to me, I would love to be able to do that. I want to pray for us and ask God to take this word and to convict us of our sin and to convict us of the righteousness of Jesus and of our hope in Him. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, how you challenge and convict us. And Lord, also how you comfort us by your grace. I pray, Lord, for those who are listening to my voice, wherever they may be scattered today. um, Spirit of God, that you would convict us of our sin. And Lord, help us to be honest with you about our sin because you've warned us in your word that if we, if we pretend that we don't have any sin, we deceive ourselves, we call you a liar, and the truth is not in us. And so Lord, I, I pray more, more simply than I could put it um, that, that every person who's listening to my voice today would confess their sins to you because the, you've promised in your word that if we will do that, if we will confess our sins, that you are faithful and you are just to cleanse and to forgive. Lord, I pray that you would use these questions to help us determine whether we're walking in darkness or the light. God, that we would examine our hearts. We would ask ourselves whether we're being open and honest with you about our sin. Lord, that we would ask ourselves whether we're trusting in you or in something or someone else whether we're clinging to the truth of your word and whether we're loving your family. Lord, help us to discern our own hearts and help us to to cling to Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen and amen.